You're listening to Environmentally Speaking, a weekly podcast diving into legal matters surrounding the environment, public utilities, energy, zoning, and permitting laws in Rhode Island and the surrounding areas with your host, Marissa Desitel. Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for joining us on this special episode of Environmentally Speaking. Good morning. I'm Marissa Desitel, an environmental attorney. And I'm Clarice. I'm coming in with our topics, questions, and things to chat about. And I am extra excited today. Guys, we have super fun Zach. We have our first listener request. Wait, this is super fun Zach? This is super fun Zach, the celebrity. I didn't know. I didn't put the two and two together there. Yup. This is the guy who brought us all our first bummer topic. And we've been bringing it up ever since. So... (laughs) It's an honor, an OG character. Well, thank you guys for having me. I felt so bad about bumming everybody out. I thought maybe if we talked about, you know, animals during baby season, we could raise the spirits a little bit. So yeah, guys, uh, other than coming up with some really sad topics, Zach is actually the executive director of Bird's Eye Cape Wildlife Center. So we're bringing the mood back up today. Like you said, we're going to talk about some baby animals um, and all of that. So we're really excited to have you. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you guys for having me. It's an honor. So let's just start out with some basic foundation stuff. What is the Cape Wildlife Center? Uh, sure. Yeah. So we are uh, part of the New England Wildlife Centers. And so we run two hospitals, one in Weymouth, Massachusetts, kind of near Metro Boston, and then one down on Cape Cod and Barnstable. And what our organization does is we take in either sick or injured or orphaned wild animals um, and provide them with free veterinary care with the hopes of getting them back out to the wild. Um, And then the other half of what we do is education um, and a little bit of advocacy these days. And so we're working to not only teach students of all ages throughout the community about the importance of conservation, but when issues come up that are um, systemic or particularly impactful in a given year, we, we do try to help with advocacy on, on a larger sort of decision maker level so we can affect change that way. So what kind of range of animals come through your door? I mean, when you say that you're, you're helping wildlife, that's such a huge range. Yeah, that's my favorite part of my job in that every day is different. We take about 200 and yeah, 230 different species in a given year. Um, so that's pretty much anything you're going to find in you know, hanging out in your backyard anywhere across New England, um, everything from foxes and coyotes to owls and hawks to baby squirrels to skunks, um, you name it. And if it, you know, if it ends up on the wrong side of a human interaction or if it ends up with an illness or, you know, something like that, um, we will take it in at either of our hospitals and try to get them healthy again. Zach, do you ever take in more exotic animals? Is there like a random lizard that shows up ever <laughs> you know we do get a fair amount of random lizards now that you mention it um <laughs> so one of one of our hospitals um runs a practice called the odd pet vet and it's a fee-for-service okay. practice so the it helps odd us pet vet yes and it's well the pets are odd but also the vet is my dad and he is very He's odd. odd as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but we, uh, yeah, we use that to generate funding for you know our other services. But we take care of anything but dogs and cats. So that if you do have a random lizard at your house as a pet, or a guinea pig, or a rabbit, or um, something that's not a dog or cat, we'll take that in um, for low costs and um, 
you know, use the money to, to help the wildlife and teach. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Then, I love that. And there, uh, yeah, it's it's um, so about 500 species total. But I will tell you, um, getting back to your your first point, a lot of people will find like their neighbor's escaped lizard or their, you know, their neighbor's pet snake has gotten out. They think it's wildlife and they drop it off with us. So we do get a lot of those as well. And what do you what do you do with those types of animals that are dropped off? It's not like they come with a, a collar and a name tag or. Yeah, I was place, just about so. to say, how do you tell it's <laughs> like a, a house snake versus an outside snake? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever put a tried to put a collar on a snake? It's pretty difficult. Um, <laughs> most, most of the time we um, we know that, you know, they're a domestic species right off the bat and then we'll call local animal control or um, kind of put the word out and a lot of times we don't end up finding the owner so we have to um, take the next step and try to find a good home for them well i mean they're rehomed but it's still a good place um kind of shifting a little bit how did you get involved with the center you said that your dad is the the odd pet vet was it always a family thing Yes, uh, for better or worse, my father is a veterinarian and my brother is in veterinary school right now. Um, so actually, I grew up in a wildlife hospital and I pretty much swore up and down for my entire childhood that I would never go into the field. Um, and then I went to school, went to grad school and became a hydrologist. Um, and it turned out that was short lived because when the Cape Wildlife Center was going out of business, they needed an executive director. And I, I uh, kind of got sucked back in that way. But I'll be honest, I couldn't be happier. It is, um, like I said, it's never boring. And we get to do a lot of different um, things and help a lot of different people and animals. So no regrets here. So how long have you been in this role now? Uh, I this We just passed my fifth anniversary as, as the director. Um, and since New England Wildlife Center took over the Cape Wildlife Center. Very cool. Um, kind of shifting a little bit. I know that you do, do you do a lot of field work as the executive director? Are you still able to get out into the field or has that joy been passed on to others? Well, as, as it is with many nonprofits, you gotta wear a lot of hats. Um, so yeah, the short answer is yes, I do. Um, we do a lot of rest. We just launched a rescue service. Um, so we're out doing sort of specialized rescues that might be on the scope of what a normal um, member of the public could do, or maybe assisting um, animal control or specialized departments. Um, but I'm also a janitor, and I'm also a carpenter, and I'm also a fundraiser, and, and an accountant, and a phone answerer. Um, it's how we stay in business. You got to be flexible. And um, like I said, if you guys haven't figured it out already, um, my attention span is short. So getting to do a lot of little tasks throughout the day is um, is what keeps me engaged and, and makes me. Uh, probably the most effective I could be at work. I will you vouch. You said that you, um, you lost a rescue? Oh, we, uh, sorry, we launched a rescue service. Oh, launched, um, okay, okay. Yeah, so during um, COVID first, and now we're, we're actually having an emergence of bird flu um, in New England, we sort of realized that there was, there was a pretty significant need for people um, to actually go out into the community and pick up animals. I mean, most of the time it's either your local environmental agency or environmental police or um, animal control or a member of the public that finds an animal, right? So those are either, you know, semi-governmental or a member of the public. They pick the animal up, they bring it in. But with COVID and people were worried about being exposed, it, it sort of started a pilot program for us where we were actually going out 
And it, it ended up snowballing because the thing we can do that most other services or animal controls can't is we'll bring veterinary care into the field. And so what that means is if you have a, say this actually happened um, not too long ago, but say you got a, a coyote with its legs stuck in a fence, something like that. It's the species that um, can be mildly dangerous to humans just because of the, the uh, disease potential. And, you know, of course the coyote was angry. Um, so we were able to go out with a veterinarian and actually chemically sedate the animal, meaning make it go to sleep, reduce the stress level. And then we can work, you know, to cut it out of the fence and get it emergency triage, stabilize it. And so by the time it's on its way back to the hospital, it's already begun the medical treatment, you know, not, not dissimilar to like a human EMT. Wow. So, and, and so the and needs you have oh. dedicated staff that that does that type of work yes uh it took a, a lot of fundraising but we actually just last uh, month hired a full-time person who's um trained up and you know she's a vet tech and a wildlife rehabber and a pack agent and um that's awesome is, yeah it's been yeah it's been really good we've done uh, i think 42 rescues in 30 days so we're wow. the need is there oh when you do the chemical sedation, are you, for some reason, I had this vision of someone in a safari outfit with a dart gun, but that's probably not accurate, right? <laughs> well, they never let me wear the cool hat anymore, but we, we do have um, an air powered dart gun. But to be honest, most of the time, it's, it, you know, as per DEA rules and per um, Massachusetts Fish and Wildlife rules, the drugs have to be loaded and should be administered by a licensed veterinarian. And so most of the time we have experienced handlers and it's mostly done by, by an injection. But when the situation arises, we are, we're ready. So yeah, as long I'm, as you're licensed, you can go out with a blow dart. That's kind of what I'm hearing. As long as I have a license, I can do it. Yeah. Are you writing this down, Clarice? Yeah. Yeah. I will Get tell the you. Certification. We took, <laughs> we took a, um, it's called safe capture. It was a chemical capture course. Um, and I should also mention, we do work through the odd pet vet with a number of other institutions, like um, a couple zoos, uh, Boston Museum of Science, um, you know, larger organizations that have collections. Um, and so part of those certifications were geared towards working with, with larger animals too. All right. So the next and I think inevitable question about field work is, do you have a crazy story or a favorite story about being out in the field or, or doing a rescue? Uh, well, <laughs> we've gotten into a lot of strange situations. I'll tell you one from earlier this week because <laughs> it's the one I can remember. Um, so early, early last or this week that we're in, uh, we got a call from the Boston Firefighter Academy out on Moon Island. Um, and that's a little far field for us. We we're like, okay, yeah, what's going on? And um, so this is where they train firefighters and there's like special ops rescue teams. And it's it's sort of a whole island that's dedicated to police and fire training. Wait, and it's, it's an uh, island? It is. It's like, I guess, a, technically a little peninsula, but it's right up. Um, if you know where UMass Boston is it, in Dorchester, it's, it's sort of right catty corner okay. there. I got you. Um, it was my first time there, but it was a very cool place. And one of their simulation buildings where they were doing confined space drills. So, you know, firefighters were suiting up. They were working there. So I think they were simulating like car rescues or if they had to go into a building with um, large air ducts, they could go in. So it was, you know, they were trying to get through smaller areas. And they called because they had the trainers were setting up the drill and they might have been doing a dry run and they found an extremely angry raccoon <laughs> in one of the air vents. Um, and it caused 
pretty significant um, commotion. And, you know, these guys are good. They're good under pressure for sure. So they, they were able to vacate the building safely. Um, but it was a mom raccoon and she had babies and she was very angry. Um, so, we, so we were able to go over and assist them. And the, I can't even say the building was very cool. There was like a, a fake car crash to the side of it. And there were people getting ready to repel off the roof. And it was just kind of a chaotic spot for a mom to have try to raise a raccoon family. Um, so after much fuss, we were able to um, safely get mom, uh, the babies out and then capture mom after the fact. But she, you can imagine in a space that's designed to have a lot of small passageways um, with a lot of interior rooms, she absolutely had the upper hand because she'd you know, pop through a hole in the wall and then pop out behind us and then um, the above us. So we eventually settled on a humane trap. And so we were able to take the babies, give them veterinary care, give them fluids, give them a meal, trap mom safely overnight. And then in the state of Massachusetts, and I think it's the same in Rhode Island, you can't trap wildlife and move them off of the property that they're located on. And so we always have to abide by that. And there's a number of reasons for it. But basically what we had to do is once we had the whole family contained, find a safe spot on the property, which we did. Um, we let the babies, the door open, and then we let mom go. And we we're actually, able, you know, set up trail cams. And we we're actually able to watch mom come in and one by one, move the babies out of the crate to a new spot. Um, and so it ended really well. And, um, I believe they're back to training over there and the raccoon has hopefully found a slightly less chaotic spot for, for her uh, family. Oh, that is wild. <laughs> All I can picture is these people who are like geared up to repel off a side of a building into a car crash and they just turn a duct and face yeah. the raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what's ruined the day. Yeah. They were pretty, um, yeah, they were, they were pretty uh, jazzed up about it. And uh, I guess, you know, they had full, these are, recruits i think people going through the academy for the first time and so they were kind of they needed that space clear so they could take these folks through because you know one should have to deal with angry raccoon call on their first <laughs> and their first how row. is it that they knew how is it that they knew to call you do you do outreach with government uh we we have been around for 30 years or so the new england wildlife center uh, people know us as a community resource and we do do a fair amount of outreach um into the community like I said, we, we work with a lot of um, local animal control departments and, you know, fire departments find things all the time. But I will tell you, we are also on um, the Cape Cod Rabies Task Force, which is a, a sort of a, a stakeholder group. It is about 60 towns and um, local health departments. We also just got a grant from the Department of Environmental Protection um, to do oil, oiled wildlife training. And so oh, yesterday. Yeah spent my whole day out with the DEP doing um, field drills on how to contain oil and um, those kind of things. So over the last few years, we've been really ramping up our government partnerships. And the last the last program I would I would highlight that um, sort of in that vein, and I think introduced us to a lot of people, is that our Weymouth location, we take, um, now it's going to be three groups a year of nonviolent inmates, before pre-release inmates, and they actually come and will train for six weeks in our facility. Um, so they come and they learn the basic skills of how to be a veterinary technician or a veterinary assistant. Um, they work right with the animals in addition to doing carpentry, in addition to doing uh, office work. And then once they're released, we give them a work voucher so that they can come back and have sort of a first resume point um, in as part of their reintroduction plan. Or, and wow. some we've been, been able to place. Um, so, you know, we did meet a lot of folks just trying to coordinate that program too. And it's 
it's honestly one of the, one of our favorites. It's it's such a cool, impactful way to connect with these folks. Um, and you know, we get them coming back all the time with updates and um, you know their new jobs. It's just it's really fulfilling to to get to do that. That's amazing. That's really awesome work. Um, oh, I'm going to shift again. We're going to go a little bit more into environmental stuff now. I know that you've said that you've been doing this for five years as the as the director. Have you noticed any environmental changes from your, you know, from when you started to today? Has there been any like impacts? Well, you're going to laugh at me. But yes, um, and I have to, this environmental scientist in me has to say this, we always have to make the distinction between climate and weather, right? So in our world, so much of the animal emissions and so many of the environmental hazards we're up against, um, whether it be something like, you know, cyanotoxicity in, in water or, um, you know, disease, emerging disease outbreaks, a lot of that is driven by climatic cycles or weather cycles. And so obviously the things we're seeing over five years is a pretty small time scale, but I can tell you a lot of it is, is weather driven. But I will tell you the thing I am most suspicious about is uh, squirrels. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you in the, in the rehab world, I don't think anybody, um, I mean, any of the rehabbers listening wouldn't think this is weird, but I get it, it sounds odd to the average person, but we tend to tell time in our business by squirrel season. And so for many, many years, you could gauge when spring is truly started or when babies are starting to be, um, parents are starting to be productive and having their kids by when you get your first batch of squirrels. And you could kind of tell when the decline in baby season has begun when you get your last batch. And so for, you know, growing up years and years, decades, you could get uh, your first batch of squirrels always right around St. Patrick's Day, like mid the Ides of March was like pretty much guaranteed squirrel season. And you can set your watch by it. And then, you know, the end of September is probably when you get your last batch. And so over the last five years since I started, I believe we are starting to see a longer stretch, meaning that we're getting squirrels, um, unfortunately, earlier into, into February. But the really concerning is on the tail end, we're, we're seeing babies all the way up through December. And I think we even got one clutch in January this year. Wow. And so again, this, this is speculation, something we'd love to do more study on, but my sense is with the milder winters or when you have winters with intense like episodic storms, but a generally higher temperature overall, um, there is better ground cover, which means there's better access to food sources, there's better access to melted water. And so my assumption is that they, the parents have more resources and instead of having one or two clutches a year, they're actually having three and four because they're they're getting away with it and so i mean that sounds silly squirrels are, are squirrels but around here they're they're pretty close to the base of our food chain and so you can you can start to sort of uh, extrapolate from there you know what is that going to do to the fox population the coyote population the hawk population the owl population and all of a sudden you're sort of up at our our top tier predators so it's something we're watching we collect a lot of data on and, and something we'd love to dig in if there's any uh grad students or professors out there that want to want to help us with that one. <laughs> I didn't. I'm still wow. stuck on the sentence batch of squirrels. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. It was probably not. That was kind of a weird answer, but no, um, I love it though. Yeah. This is, oh, I would have never. Well, it, it makes total sense. And it's also really scary that 
if it is climate change, and I think it is, that your folks are seeing the real life implications of that effect. Yeah. And it's it's becoming the norm. Yeah. It, 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 is. it is now, you know, it's um <laughs> it's not good. It's yeah, scary. it's scary. very scary and and I'll tell you in a less comedic way, um, you know, a lot of the disease processes we come up against every day and you know, pretty much anyone in New England does is you think about things like rabies, um, which has is a zoonotic disease, meaning people can get it, uh, distemper, um, mange, any of those sort of uh I guess endemic diseases that can exert some sort of population control on the wild animals. Um we tend to get relief from them uh, with the colder weather or, you know, with seasonal change. So it's usually pretty episodic rises and falls, but, but we do, you know, I think start to suspect that we may start to see a change in the distribution of cases, which, you know, all this is to say human and pet health is, is very, very tied as we learned during COVID. Um, You can't really separate wildlife health from human health um, and human well-being. So it's all stuff we, we do take really seriously and are watching closely and, um, our, our viewpoint on it, honestly, now is we are just, we're trying to treat every individual animal, but every single animal is a learning opportunity. So we're capturing just as much data as we can on every patient. And then, you know, trying to synthesize it and share it with other people. And especially in different parts of the country, or especially in different parts of New England, where we can sort of compare what they're seeing with what we're seeing and try to get to some of the, the driving factors. If any of our listeners are interested in getting involved what opportunities do you offer for that? Is your is your facility open to the public? That kind of thing. <clears throat> um, so the Weymouth branch is open to the public. Um, it, it was built um, as a wildlife hospital, so it's all windowed. You can walk through, look at um, all the treatments happening, and um, there's they even have like a folk and blues jam every Friday night. Um, so it's a very it's kind of a community center atmosphere. The Cape branch will definitely do tours, but they have to be pre scheduled. Um, and then we normally have a fair amount of volunteers, but with COVID um, and bird flu, we've, we've, we've knocked down the numbers a little bit. So I think if, if people want to get involved, they can absolutely email me through the website, uh, capewildlifecenter.com. And I'm the guy that responds. I'd be happy to, happy to try and help them set up a program um, or any interns listening, um, regardless of age, but if you're in school and looking for school credit, we do offer about 75 internship spots each year to undergrads um, all the way up through veterinary or postdoc students. Um, and that's a, that's a really cool way to get your hands dirty and learn sort of firsthand what we're working on. Yeah, those are some awesome opportunities and experiences right there. Um, I mean, just the idea of the fact that you guys work so closely with the odd pet vet, that's not going to be your average internship. <laughs> So for people looking for a unique way to meet your credits, or if you've got the extra time, this is a super worthy cause to, to volunteer and reach out to. Um, also, I wanted to mention, so you were talking a little bit about um, disease impact and how you said that a disease isn't so much confined to an animal, but obviously it will inevitably <clears throat> affect people too. Um, you actually helped co-write a bill on that. It was a different... Not so much bird flu, but <laughs> yeah. So we, um, one of the efforts we have been heavily involved in, and an advo- from an advocacy perspective, is this is going to be a mouthful, and then I promise I'll abbreviate it afterwards. But it's second generation anticoagulant rodenticides, and we call it SCARS for short. Um, but essentially, what it is, 
is it's the pretty standard rat poison that if you were to, you know, say you got a rat problem in your house or a mouse problem, you pick up the phone, you call your local pest control operator, they come out and they say, okay, I'm going to set you up with some of these boxes. They put down those big black boxes you see on every street corner. You go to downtown uh, Providence, you go to downtown Boston, you're going to see them everywhere if you start looking for them. And a lot of the time what's in those boxes um, is, a, is a bunch of bait pellets. And the active mechanism in those bait pellets is that it stops your blood from clotting, right? And so the way it works is, um, you know, it's they try to make a target, but a mouse or a rat goes in there. They are going to eat a little bit of this poison. And the mouse or rat doesn't die right away, right? Because you don't want mice and rats dying in your walls or dying in your ceiling or whatever and starting to smell. So there's a latency to it. And all of a sudden you have a very sick, slow moving mouse, which if you are a opportunistic or lazy hawk or owl or fox that is looking for an easy meal, you probably think you're getting a, a close to free lunch. And so you eat the sick mouse or rat. And all of a sudden you have then in turn dosed yourself with this poison. So your blood stops clotting appropriately, you get sick. And then the next mouse or rat you can catch because you're not feeling well, is probably one in that same area and probably one that's also slow moving. And so you see this sort of bioaccumulation cycle start um, where these guys can repeatedly dose themselves over and over. And the reason we we feel so strongly about um, reducing that particular uh, brand of poison is just because the impacts are, are so frequent and, and really horrible for us. So, I mean, hundreds of times a year we take in animals um, that have had this type of exposure. It's, it's mostly hawks and owls um, and eagles yeah. and raptors and, um, you know, a lot of the animals out there that are not only important to the whole ecosystem health, but also realize they are nature's road of control, right? So, you know, a great horned owl in our care in a year would probably eat 2000 mice all by itself. And so if you poison that animal, uh, and then take it out of the environment, not only are you, um, you know, sort of kneecapping nature's ability to take care of rodents, but you're pretty much guaranteeing that you're going to need to continue putting out poison in your area too. And so it's a really hard cycle to break. And so the bill we're working on, um, uh, which I think now has a, has a tag of HD 4600 in, in um, Massachusetts legislator, it's called an act relative to pesticides. And it was initiated by representative Jim Hawkins of Attleboro. Um, and this bill, it's not an outright ban on these poisons. But what it will do is it will increase education around them. It, um, I should say too, these poisons without getting too boring about it, they're only licensed for um, to be distributed by pest control operators, which means you can technically, you can, if you try hard enough, you can buy them on Amazon, which is a whole other issue. But what it means is when the pest control operator comes to your house, um, you're not necessarily reading the back of the label or, in, or do you ever really have an opportunity to understand what's being put out if they don't take the time to explain it to you. And so this bill would um, make every operator give out a sheet to the people just saying, you know, here's what I'm using, here are the environmental impacts of it, and you'd have to sign it um, and just, you know, make that conscious choice. Because I will tell you, we talk about this all the time, and I have never given a talk about it where someone didn't come up after and say, oh, my God, I've never heard of that. I had no idea. Or, oh, my God, I've been using that poison for years. It just never came up that this is what it was doing. And so <clears throat> trying to do it that way. And then the other big one for us 
is record keeping in Massachusetts. And so people do technically need to keep records on how much um, and the spatial distribution of where they put this stuff down, but um, they do it on paper and it goes into a repository and it's inaccessible pretty much to anyone unless you go in for a very, you know, prescribed hour or whatever and you want to look through, you know, thousands and thousands of papers and try to make sense of it. So this would uh, create an electronic database. So at least we can start getting baselines on how much is used, where it's used, and what the impacts are. Um, and so those those three things in concert, we're hoping will reduce the use of this poison without um, fully, you know, restricting a consumer's right to to make the choice if they want to. But the hope is that they use safer alternatives, which do exist out there. And here in Rhode Island, even though that legislation wouldn't affect people here, you could still, as a homeowner or someone that uses a um, rodent company to try to address an issue, you can inquire with the company about what they are using and ask if they have an alternative to something that's not so poisonous. Absolutely. Yeah. As, as a consumer, you do have a full choice over that. And I'll tell you, most companies carry a bunch of different methods. Um, there are other poisons out there that are, that are not quite as toxic. Uh, secondarily, um, there are IPM strategies, meaning you can do prevention and then snap traps, something like that. There are a lot of options in the toolbox. And our goal is just to move this rat poison to the way back of the toolbox. Yep. Um, yeah. Great. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's been our effort. Yeah, nice work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we are we are uh, we making slow but steady progress on that one. Um, yeah, that's... I, can I give a plug for your... Um, you guys down in Rhode Island, you have a, an agency called the Wildlife Clinic of Rhode Island down there too. And we actually just had an opportunity to work with them very recently, but they're, they're mm -hmm. awesome folks too. And I'm sure would be happy to, um, you know, assist with advice or, or if you find an animal that looks like it has rat poison or toxicity, they would be a really good resource to call. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, not to, I mean, to echo those people at the end of your talks, I had no idea that was a thing. And, and it's such a, seemingly small thing of putting out rat poison for your home can affect this huge chain of animals. Um, it is really important. So, uh, Absolutely. yeah, I think if you want to plug again, it is bill H three nine nine one, um, for those interested in looking to find out more info about it. Um, and tell plug a little bit more about the wildlife center. Let us know where we can find you, get some resources learn more about you. Absolutely. Um, and so Clarice, I, I, I think because it, it just got recommended favorably and now it's with way means, I believe it is now house docket 4,600. Um, okay. That is important. Center. Thank you. No problem. I can send you the link after. Um, it keeps changing on me. And I truthfully, this is your guys' area expertise. This is a lot of new stuff for me. So I'm, I'm learning, um, sort of on the job here, how to track these things, but, um, so anyway, yeah, though, what was I going to do? I'll plug the wildlife centers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> this is that, uh, that short attention span kicking in. Yeah. Yeah. Zach, now is the time yeah. where you sell the center. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Um, <laughs> so if anybody, is, if anybody out there is interested in learning more about our organization, if you were to find a sick or injured wild animal, you're interested in a STEM education experience, or you just want to learn more about the natural world or your own backyard, 
please check out the New England Wildlife Centers, either our Weymouth branch or Cape branch. We have people standing by seven days a week, and we offer a number of experiential programs to bring people from all walks of the community into what we do and try to empower them to protect the natural world. And you can find us at newildlife.org or capewildlifecenter.com. And if you found an injured animal, our front desk line that's manned uh, seven days a week and an after hours number is 508-362-0111. Awesome. And if you guys want to hear more from Zach, you can reach us at help at Desitel ESQ. You could find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what you think. Bring in any questions for Zach. If we want to hear more specific topics, let us know. We'll ask him to come back if he's able to. Um, so on that note, thank you again for coming in. We've thank learned you, about batches of squirrels, yeah. um, raccoons in ducks, and, and all sorts of craziness. So thank you for that. Angry animals. Yeah. Yes. Thanks both. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Zach. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Environmentally Speaking. If you're in need of an environmental attorney, we are here to help. Call us at 401-477-0023 or visit our website at www.desatellaw.com. That's www.desatellaw.com.